Well, good morning. Let's uh, flip over to uh, 1 Corinthians. That's what we're in. Chapter 16. <clears throat> so just by a brief review, the last couple of weeks when we were in the uh, auditorium, I uh, looked at a psalm one uh, morning, and then last week we looked at some teachings of Jesus out of Matthew 10 about not worrying, not, not uh, having anxiety over earthly stuff. But back to... Uh, finishing up the letter, we'll probably take two weeks to do this last chapter of this letter. Uh, by very brief review, remember this is a response letter from Paul to the church at Corinth. Now, uh, Paul planted that church. He spent about a year and a half there, uh, preaching and teaching and, and being involved there. Uh, then he leaves, and there's other people, Apollos, different folks who, who went through there. Uh, but there, what's happened is the church has grown and some pretty substantial dysfunction has occurred, sin. And remember, the whole gist of this letter is a response to a gal named Chloe. Chloe had written a letter, or somehow communicated, most likely a letter, brought to Paul and is addressing a bunch of problems that are going on at her church, which is admirable, right? Because she, she doesn't just eject. Now, granted, there's probably only one church in Corinth, but she doesn't just eject she decides, hey, I'm going to fight for my church. I'm going to see, you know, see what God might do in this case. So she writes to Paul. And now Paul is responding to things from that letter. We don't know what was in her original communique, but we know that he is responding in general to those questions and to those, those concerns. Now, the, the underlying theme of the letter is this. What are we living for? In other words, who's the center of my life? Am I living for me? So remember, he addresses things like suing each other, premarital sex. Uh, what else does he address? He addresses being drunk at church, you know, just random stuff that occurs. And so he's saying, look, all these different things that happen, are you doing those things to preserve identity? Are you doing those things to protect yourself? And he, he's asking the question, why would you sue someone at your church? He even says, why wouldn't you just take the financial wrong? So there, he's, what he's promoting is this idea that there's two ways that we can walk as believers. We can walk with love for God and love for one another, in which case everything that we do, literally everything, we want to evaluate and say, if I say this sentence, am I saying this sentence because I love God and I love this person? Or am I saying the sentence because it will protect me and preserve me because I can lash back or lash out at them or respond in a way or something like that? Am I, uh, you know, am I uh, interacting with this person who might have done me wrong you know, over my lawnmower, so I want to sue them? Am I suing them because I believe this is what God wants for me and wants for them? And this will be, what is it that, why is it, and what is the motivation for all that I do? So you see, in the beginning, he says there's two wisdoms. There's the wisdom of this world that is take care of yourself, Make sure you're completely protected and make sure that everything goes well for you. And then he says, then there's the wisdom of God, which is that I lay my life down, that I'm, I'm open to what God has for me in my life, and that in that wisdom, then I can move forward and actually find my life, find the fulfillment, find the, the, uh, the peace and the things that I'm looking for. And he says that those things are always at odds with one another. So in chapter 16, just, which is very Pauline, if you will, he does this in many of his letters, he just begins to kind of just throw applications out there. And I'm not saying they're random, they're inspired by the Spirit, but they seem to be like, and do this, and do this, and don't forget this, and remember this person, and greet that person, and do this, and, and I love you, goodbye. You know, it's kind of how his, his letters all tend to end. So this is the beginning of, of essentially these practical ideas that Paul is sharing with Corinth, it's all been practical, but he's summing up his letter. So we're only going to look at two main ideas today, and uh, for time's sake, and, and so we can give them due regard, and, and then also be able to finish next week the, the second half of the letter. So we'll kick off in, under this uh, introduction and idea about how we can exercise um, God's wisdom in our life. Chapter 16 and verse 1. Now about the collection for the Lord's people... Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So the first thing is that Paul addresses is giving. 
And I want to say from the outset that there's no motivation here to uh, try to get to give people more. We have a very generous church. So as we're talking about giving, it can be a little bit of an awkward conversation because it's been abused through the literally two millennia that the church has been on the earth and before that. We know that some of the motivations of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and different political figures in, in the first century and before that, the, the, the Pharisees, they're, they're, they were started about 250 years before uh, Jesus, that oftentimes that, it, that money and greed become a thing in church. But it's where we're at, and so we'll talk about it. One of the things I think, that, and I want to throw this out there right away, is Paul's giving instruction based on how people to, to, are to give. In this case, it is a specific collection that he's talking about. So what's happening is there are other uh, churches or groups of God people that are suffering financially, specifically in Jerusalem. Other times it's other places, but they're suffering financially. And so Paul is talking about a collection that they said that they would make, and he's saying this is how you are to go about it. So he gives a couple details about it. Number one, he says, do it when I'm not there. And we don't know exactly why that is. It could be that uh, you know, this letter was definitely read to the Corinthian church, so everyone in the Corinthian church would know that Paul didn't want the collection taken when he was there. But it's, it could be because he didn't want people to feel like he's coming to get the money or that his presence would lean on them for money or that you know, they should give more because he might see or something like that. Uh, the, the, another thing that he talks about it is he says that each person should give according to their income. And that's where I want to talk about this. A lot of us, we call it the tithe, right? If you've been around Christian circles very long, almost every time they call it the tithe. This is going to seem a little scandalous, but we're going to talk about this for a second. No place in the New Testament is giving associated with tithe. No place. So tithe means 10, 10%, right? Tithe is from the law. Tithe is actually pre-law. Tithe is what Abraham gave to Melchizedek. That's the first time we read about tithing in the Bible. So why am I bringing this up? Paul writes more about giving than any New Testament writer in all of his letters. And he never once uses the term tithe. Not one time does he relate it to giving. Jesus, who only when he talked about giving... He, whenever he talked about giving or he talked about tithe, it was only brought up in the concept of that's what people are doing right now. Um, I believe it's a five or six times in the Bible and five verses in the New Testament, I should say, is when tithing is mentioned. And for the most part, whenever tithing is mentioned in the New Testament, it's a, it's a, a, a story or some sort of communication about the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Except in the book of Hebrews, and this is you know, kind of a sidebar, in the book of Hebrews, uh, <laughs> Paul, or whoever the, the, the writer may be, it's not signed, Paul makes the argument that Aaron, like Aaron, the original high priest, he paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. And the point that he makes is that Christ has a superior um, priesthood the lineage of Jesus' priesthood is superior to that of the Levitical priesthood because the Levitical priesthood paid tithes to the originator of Jesus' priesthood. So if you're like, what does that mean? Don't even sweat it. Well, you know, it's, it's another day. But all my point is that this is that the tithe is never brought up. Why? Why do I say that? Because it's, it's not, you don't have to tithe. You don't have to give 10%. What Paul is putting forward is, because let me, let me push that a little farther. If you try to say, well, we should tithe because it's from the law, then you're a debtor to the whole law, right? Because that's what we're told in Romans. If you try to choose one part of the law and say, that's the part I follow, Paul says, that's not legitimate. You are, you're a debtor to the whole law then. Now, if you say to yourself, well, I like tithe. Tithe makes sense to me. There's a biblical precedent for that, and I feel comfortable with that. Then you should do that. But what you give, he says, is dependent on your income. Dependent in what you can afford. And so, you know, we're not going to close the doors here and then throw up, you know, a bag around and give till it hurts. That's not what we're doing. We're just talking about this is how God has called to give. Now, we'll look at some verses about giving and what it does. If you're curious, like if you give here at the church, number one, just so you know, I don't know what anybody gives at all. I don't look at it. I'm not part of the count of it. I don't want to know it. I've never looked at the books one time in the 16 years I've been doing this. Uh, I've seen a couple of checks because I didn't know what they were, and I opened it from the mail, and I was like, oh, these are tie checks. I don't want to see this. 
And the reason I do that is because it doesn't matter to me what you give, and God forbid that it ever should. You know, I, I, I don't, I, it's, ignorance is bliss uh, in, for me in that sense. And so we have trusted people that count it, and then they give me a, a zipped-up little sealed bag, and I take that to the bank, and I put it in, in, the, in the little night drop box on Sunday afternoon. That's, that's how we do it here. You also might think, and, and just as a sidebar, why don't you guys take an offering here? We don't take an offering simply because I was never comfortable with it. We started off taking an offering. And let me say this. I'm not saying anything bad about a church that passes a basket or a bag or something like that, okay? I am not saying anything bad about that. If that's what that church, I, I, I trust that any church that is doing that is doing that because that's what they believe that Jesus wants them to do. If we were trying to say, well, we should do it the way the Bible does it. Well, the only example we have in the New Testament of how people gave was the apostles. And in Acts chapter 5, and we'll look there, in Acts chapter 5, everybody came up and laid it at the apostles' feet and the elders. So if we want to go full biblical, we'll get John and Mark and I'll stand here like this, and you guys can all lay money at our feet. That'd be a little weird, wouldn't it? Kind of be a turnoff all around, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because culturally, that's not what we do. That's not, how, that's, that's not a cultural thing here. That would be absolutely bizarre. So all that to say is we, do, we have a box in the back, and it's, it's, it's solely because we want your giving to be private between you and Jesus. And, and even with the basket, I don't know, because I'm a broken person, when I've gone to the churches with baskets, uh, you know, you can put in your whole giving amount one week, but then the basket comes around, and you feel like, well, I don't want somebody to see me not put money in there. And so you, like, throw a two, two bucks in. And it wasn't because you were excited to give to Jesus because you don't want to look bad with your Christian friends, right? So we just want to avoid the whole thing and just say, hey, you want to give something in the back, then do that. If you don't, hey, God bless you in that. We're not here for your money. We actually have a very generous church. If you're curious, the carpet, this carpet was about $38,000. Uh, yeah, the, the, the paint was actually donated by somebody. But so it's, it's, we have a giving church. So this is by no means a you guys need to pony up speech or something like that. This is just how does biblical giving work and how can we deal with it if it makes us feel uncomfortable or we're not into it. One of the interesting things is that if, we, if, we, if you don't mind, let's look at Acts chapter 5 just to see how did the New Testament church look at money and look at giving. So in, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, you have 3,000 people get saved in one day, Right? That'd be pretty substantial. It'd be a logistical nightmare, right, of how are you going to get these people to meet with each other? How are you going to help them, you know, develop their relationship with Christ? How is that all going to work? So that's what happens. 3,000 people get saved in one day. And a lot of those people, so it's at the Feast of Pentecost, which for every Jewish male and your family was one of the required feasts. So three times a year, you had to go to Jerusalem and you had to partake, and Pentecost was one of them. So what happens is you have that Jesus rises from the dead. He pours out his spirit and on, on the, the 120 who are in a room praying. And all of a sudden, they, this rushing wind happens. And it's so loud that a bunch of people from Jerusalem surround this house that they're in. And they begin to preach the gospel. But through the Holy Spirit, they begin to preach the gospel in all these different languages. Like I can't remember, like 11, 12 different languages. And it's, it's Bithynian and all just, just boo. And they're all preaching the gospel. So 3,000 people come to that, they hear that, their consciousness is pricked, their heart is pricked, and they receive the Lord and they get saved. Well, now they don't want to leave. So these are all tourists, right? Because Jerusalem is about 15,000 people normally during, in, in the first century. They've, they've dated that based on graves and, and, and different counts from different historians. So Jerusalem at that time normally is about 15,000 people. During the feast, they estimate that Jerusalem's about a million to a million and a half people. So they, they're, all these people, thousands say, so let's just say that the 2,000 of them, just making a number up, are from out of town. That's a lot of resources, Right. And they don't want to leave because they've gotten saved. They received the Holy Spirit. Like this crazy, awesome thing is going on in their life. So what happens is they have no place to stay. They have no food except for what they brought for their short journey for the sacrifices. So the church as individuals, and we have no record that they asked for or that, that anything like that, but individuals begin to sell property, personal property, and they begin to give that money. And then the apostles begin to divvy that money up so that people can stay in Jerusalem and be part of this thing that God is doing. 
So we pick up, now this is a negative story, but there's something very important. So there's two people, a couple, and their name is Ananias and Sapphira. And they see this thing that's going on, this incredible thing that's happening. And they're, and, and, and they're torn. They're like a lot of us, they're torn. Because they want to give. There's a part of them that wants to give, but there's a part of them that doesn't want to give. And so they hatch a plan together and they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sell our land and we'll take part of that money and we'll donate it, which is a perfectly fine plan. And then they say, we'll keep some of the other money. But the problem is that they say, we're going to sell the land and we'll say that we sold it for whatever, 100 bucks, 100 denarii, when we actually sold it for 200 but we'll just tell everybody we sold it for 100 and we'll just keep the 100 from ourselves. No one will be the wiser, and we can donate that 100 We'll get to donate. We'll look good. It's, a, it's just a win-win, win-win situation. So they come before Peter, and, and Ananias lays the money down. Sapphira's not with him. He lays the money down, and Peter says, did you sell it for this much? He goes, yeah, we sold it for that much. And he says, and this is where we pick up, because he says to them in verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? You have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have kept for yourself some of the money that you received from the land. So if we were to stop there, you might think that the problem was that they didn't give it all. That they should have given all the money for the land. But that's not what he said. In verse 4, he says this, Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? So he asked the car, the issue wasn't that they wanted to keep some of the money back. The issue was, he says, the land was yours. When you had the land, it was yours to do whatever you wanted with. And then he says, once you sold the land, the money was yours. And you could have done whatever you wanted. It was at your disposal. Peter's literally just, he's putting his, the seal of approval saying, it was your land. You didn't have to donate it. You didn't have to sell it. And you didn't have to give us all the money. That was all something that these other people are just doing because they want to. The issue was, he says, how did it come into your heart to do this? How did you come to a place in your life where the priority of the giving was appearing to be something that you're not, and then also reserving something that you didn't have to, that you had the right to do that, but trying to look like you were more generous than you were? So the issue in Ananias and Sapphira's heart was not that they wanted to keep part of the money back. The issue was that they lied about it to appear, well, we don't know their entire motivation, but it, it, it looks like it was to appear to be something, to be able to walk up in front of the apostles and drop the money down and say, we sold it, we just gave you everything we had from that piece. And then everybody around could be like, that's awesome. What an awesome gift. That's how sick and twisted we are. Think about that for a second. That we would want to be recognized by other people as being generous when we're not. Isn't that weird? You know, just as a, again, as a side note to that, that's the loneliest place in the world to be. When we try to pretend we're something that we're not. You know why? Because we know what we are and what we aren't. And if we pretend to be something, if we have a facade and we make friends with that facade, we become very lonely because we know that our friends, they're not really friends with us. They're friends with who we think we are. And so we have, to, to, we have to be honest and out there. We can't be loved and loved truly unless we are who we are on the outside. And that doesn't mean just, you know, spew our, our trash on people or something like that. But the idea is we want to be honest people. Uh, and and we, an honest person is a person typically who is satisfied and is able to receive love in a way that, that they understand and embrace because they know they're being loved for who they are in Christ and not just a facade they put forward. Perhaps that was for someone here today. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just rattling on. But we go on there, and he, so he makes the statement, it was yours the whole time. If we flip forward to Acts chapter 11, here's another example. There's multiple examples in Acts of how the, the early church dealt with money. And it was 100% voluntary. There was never any coercion. There was never any uh, song and dance. There was never any trying to bait people into giving money. There, there was none of that in the early church. I mean, at least that we read about, none of that endorsed. In verse 29, it says, uh, uh, Acts eleven twenty nine. it says, the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did by sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. See there again, how did they do it? It doesn't say that they all tithe. It says that as they could help, as they could provide help. That's what they did. 
Now, in some of this, again, uh, some of it was in money and some of it was probably in commodity, right? A lot of these people are subsistence farmers or they have small shops and you know, all these things. So they're, just, they're providing what they can to help. But it's important that that's how we view giving. That's what we're doing here. We're not, there's no standard. There's no thing that if you give 9%, well, you're just a miser and a loser. If you give 11%, well, hold on to your hat. You're incredible. That's not, that's not what's being done here. It's to self-evaluate, self-evaluate. Other people don't need to evaluate what you give. And honestly, no officer of the church, officer, that's a weird word, no leadership person of the church, I don't know, should ever be deciding for you what you give. You don't ever read of that. That's not in the Bible. It's between you and Jesus alone. If you have a idea, if you're wrestling with it, and you're kind of like, well, I'm thinking about this or I'm thinking like that, that's a different story. Maybe you want to go to a person that you trust, someone, and say, hey, I'm kind of wrestling with my giving. What do you think? That's a whole different thing. But other than that, it's between you and the Lord. It's as you reason as, as you want God to do. And that's, that's it. And nobody else should have a say in it. There's another, uh, Paul's going to write a second idea or a second lesson, if you will, about this. If you don't mind flipping over to 2 Corinthians. Hopefully in a couple weeks we'll be starting 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians is essentially the follow-up letter. So uh, he writes the first letter. I don't, I don't know if anybody knows how many years apart they are. I think it's like two years or something like that or one year. I, I don't remember, honestly. But he, he writes back to them after the first letter has kind of had a chance to set in and, and, and is talking to them about essentially saying, like, this is so great that you guys have repented and this is so great that you've received back that man who had that crazy sexual relationship going on and, and make sure you don't just leave him out in the cold, embrace him, hug him, and you know, let him know that he's restored and you know, all these things. That's, that's what Second Corinthians is about. So he also readdresses what, their gift that they had uh, planned to give. So in Second Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 6, he says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided to give in your heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And we'll stop there for a second. You know, it's unfortunate. I don't know if you get them, but every once in a while I'll get these mailers. And, and, and sowing the seed is like the theme verse of the mailer. And depending on the mailer and depending on the time of year and depending on the ministry, usually there's like a number value. And you gotta, you got to plant the seed, brother. you got to plant the seed. And one, one mailer, the seed might be 1000 bucks. The next mailer, the seed might be 200 bucks. But it's built like this. It's, it's weird. It's twisted. Weird that humans do this. But what happens is giving becomes like an investment scheme. And so they appeal to our greed by saying, if you give a thousand bucks, man, you reap what you sow. And so God will return it to you because we have other promises that God says if we give, that he'll give back, you know, shaken down, overpouring, overflowing. I can't remember all the verbiage, but it's a lot, right? It's a lot. So there's, the, there's this verbiage that when you give, this will happen. Now, see, reaping what you sow is pretty much a universal idea, right? In this case, it's definitely tied to money. Can we agree with that? But it's a universal idea. But in that universal idea, he, he says, he says, look, if you sow sparingly, if you do that, then you'll reap sparingly. But note that he still says right after the second verse that we read there, he says that you should give as your heart says. So then he, he attaches some ideas about what our heart might be like, right? Because he says in verse 7, you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, right? What's compulsion? Compulsion is the idea of being, being forced, whether you're being compelled by uh, a bad Bible teaching or you're being compelled by uh, you know, some sort of emotional response you're having, if you're being compelled by someone else who's pressuring you. It's the idea of being pushed into an idea or a decision, so he says, you should not be doing this out of a compulsion, even of self-compulsion. Sometimes we are the people that compel us the most out of guilt and shame, right? Have you ever been in a situation? I don't know if you've been in, a couple times in my life. I've been in situations where I felt like, man, if I give this money, I, I, there will be important parts in my other life, there, my, my life that aren't going to get financed. 
And, and, and sometimes you can you, you give that money and miraculously there is a provision. But a lot of times it's kind of build this idea where it doesn't matter how you feel, it doesn't matter what's going on, you just give. You just give and God will, will bless you. I, don't, I have not experienced that always in my life. And maybe that's me, I don't know. I've not ever experienced a shortage, but I've definitely given in areas and then been short in others. And that was because I was compelled. Compelled by others, compelled by bad Bible teaching, and compelled by the idea if I didn't give this, that God would be happy with, unhappy with me. That I would somehow be less of a person or that I wasn't sowing and therefore I wouldn't reap. So it's important that he says it's not by compulsion and it's not grudgingly. So this is more of a self-idea, right? Where you feel like, oh, I have to give. I don't want to give, but I have to give. That's what grudging giving is. And the point that he's making is saying God doesn't want your stuff if that's how you're giving it. So if I'm giving grudgingly, then what's, what is... The answer to that, because the grudging giving is just a symptom of something going on in my heart, right? So I need to ask myself, why does it upset me to give? Why would it upset me to give money? And you may say, well, I don't trust the person I'm giving money to. Well, that's a, that's a valid flag, right? There may be a valid reason, but if it's just grudging, like God is saying, hey, I'd like you to do this, and you're just like, no way. Why? What's making your heart do that? Is it fear? Is it greed? Is it, what is it? So if I have a grudging heart, I need to deal with my heart more than I need to deal with my gift. Does that make sense? The gift that I'm looking at giving. And ask myself, why would I be grudging with money? Why would I be concerned about that? And then he goes on, he says, because God loves a cheerful giver. Now this is where we get our word hilarious. The, the Greek word is literally, is literally hilarious. And it's the idea of not just cheerful, but like super excited that you're just amped about it. So God wants our hearts about giving to be based on this idea, I'm so excited to bless the Lord with this money. I'm so excited to, to give this. Now, it's interesting because James tells us that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights, right? That our Heavenly Father gives us everything that we need. And yet Acts, Peter tells us, it's yours. You, you could have done whatever you wanted with this. And so there's this kind of interesting dynamic where God's saying, yeah, I'm going to bless you. Now, we might try to say, like, hey, I did this by my own hand. Yeah, because God gave you hands. I, I, I do this job because I have an incredible brain, because God gave that to you. Like, you know, if you're an NFL athlete, you won a genetic lottery. That's why you can do that. And then obviously hard work and all that goes into that, too. I'm not, I'm not saying that they don't work hard or something like that. But there's certain things, there's certain realities about human beings that I'm all about the Constitution, but we were not all created equal except in value, right? Some of us are more athletic than others. Some of us are smarter than others. Some of us are, you know, whatever, more outgoing or brave, all these different things, right? But anyway, to, to bring it back, here's this idea that we're to be those that are hilarious givers, and if we're not hilarious givers, if we're not cheerful about it, if it's not opportunity, if it's drudgery, you have to decide if you should still give or not. Because I think you can evaluate and go, you know what, I don't have the right heart about this, but I do want to give. But what we do need to do is evaluate why would money be so important to me? Why is it that I'm, I'm unable to part with it? At the same time, it's according to your income. If you can't afford it, then don't give. If you can't afford it, then give. If you're wondering what does it go to, it goes to carpet. It goes to my wage, Luke's wage, Dana's wage. It goes to the meals that we do. It goes to we, we support uh, a couple or a family out in France as, as uh, missionaries. Uh, we supported Calvary Seaside. We've supported them in the past, just trying to get off the ground over there. Uh, that's where it goes to, and that's, that's what we do. And anybody ever wants to see the books, you can see them. We use a program called Algos. We can give you a printout of Profit and Losses. We have absolutely nothing to hide. All I ask is give us a day because I don't even know. It's like mystical how it works, and Dana does it, so I don't know. But that's, that's what the giving, how it goes to That's how it works. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm happy you know, to field questions about that if you're wondering about that. But at the end of the day, we're called to sow, and, and God says we'll reap. But check it out because he even qualifies what the reaping is. It says, verse 8, And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He says, look, you can't outgive God. You may go without. This is something we have to understand. 
you may have times in your life that you may go without, but he always provides our needs, right? There's no promise in the scripture anywhere to provide your wants. The promises are always to provide your needs. And oftentimes when we find we don't have what we want, we actually realize how much Jesus is worth. It seems more often than not when we have everything we want, we seem to lose the value of what he's worth. And that was his warning to Israel. In Deuteronomy, as Israel is about to enter into the promised land, Moses like sits them all down. He gives them like five different sermons. I mean, you think this is bad. Just imagine like rocking Deuteronomy in a couple of days. But So he sits down. He gives them five different sermons. And in one of them, God says, he goes, here's the deal. I'm going to bring you into this land. I'm going to give you all a bunch of property. You're going to get farms, and you're going to get utensils. He even notes like the utensils, like, I don't know, the ancient you know, uh, Amorite spatula or whatever. But he says, you're going to get all the utensils. You're going to get groves. You're going to get all this stuff. And he says, I'm warning you. Don't forget me. And then he says, you're going to forget me. And then I'm going to judge you. And I'm going to bring other nations in to remind you of your need. And then you'll remember me. But I'm warning you ahead of time. Don't forget me. And that just seems to be a kind of a human occurrence. The less we experience need, the more we get comfortable with the temporal. It's kind of a bizarre thing that happens. So he says, look, God is completely able. You can't outgive him. That was, that was the, the testimony of J.C. Penney. Remember J.C. Penney's? Uh, it's not really, I, don't, I haven't seen one in a long time. But J.C. Penney, if you read his book, his testimony, his whole thing was that he just gave away millions. And his testimony is, as fast as I could give the millions away, God gave me more millions. And he just gave and gave and gave. You know another guy who's interesting? You guys remember Kurt Warner from the Rams in the 90s? Yeah. Do you know Kurt Warner had, I don't remember what his contract was, $10, $12 million. He kept $250,000 for a personal wage. And then he just gave millions and millions away. And then he just, he got the God bless him. It's interesting that one of the spiritual gifts that we have listed or manifestations is the gift of giving. And there's just some people, and I don't, I don't know if we could all be that way, or I don't, I'm not here to make a statement on that, but there's some people that God, they just give and give and give, and God just says, okay, if you're going to be faithful with that, if you're going to be a blessing, then I'll give you more to give. Then I'll, I'm going to do all the more. But it's, it's not because they're sowing the seed to get the money back. It's because they're just out there to make sure that they just distribute what God has called them to distribute. And that's what Paul's going to talk about. He's going to quote, quote the Old Testament here. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will engage, or excuse me, enlarge the harvest of your pocketbook. No. Righteousness. This is the sowing. This is the reaping. The context of the, of the sowing is financial, but the context of the reaping is spiritual. This is, this is important. Will God provide for us? Yes, we have tons and tons of promises that he will provide for us, all of our needs. But when we give, we're looking to and we're embracing the idea that the hope is that the righteousness will come from this. Not our righteousness, like we'll be more saved or he'll make us more right with him because we know that was completed in Christ, right? Our righteousness is purely based on what Jesus did at the cross. We are right with God today. Anybody who's called upon the name of the Lord is 100% righteous with God, not because of anything that any of us have ever done. We're right with God because of what Jesus did. So when he says here that there's a, a, a harvest of righteousness to be had, it's for others because he's, uh, other people's righteousness. He's going to expand on it. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in the thanksgiving to God. So he's talking to them about a specific gift that they're collecting. Does that make sense? And what he's saying is when you guys give us this money and we take it to Jerusalem or Judea or Macedonia, wherever it's going, when we take it there, he goes, this is going to have a righteous fruit because what's going to happen is we're going to give it to these people and they're going to be thankful to who? To God. So he's saying, you're sowing this seed, you, you depositing this seed is actually going to bring worship to God. You parting with this temporal mammon, this money, this thing that has only has worth for a few more years here, will actually reap eternal benefit in someone else's life. So he says, verse 12, 
this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, so physically they're going to get to eat, but it's also overflowing many expressions of thanksgiving to God. Because the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. So he says this is going to bring praise to God. Your obedience that, it's going, that, that accompanies, so in other words, they confess to believe in the gospel, they obeyed that, and because of that, that's going to bring about praise in other people's lives. So it's a, a fascinating exchange, isn't it? That you have something that is so, can be so detrimental like money. I mean, you look at like our political system, or you look at, I mean, that's a great one. Lobbying? Lobbying. So you can actually go to a politician legally in our country and say, here's 50 grand. I want to lobby you and contribute to you so that you'll get this law passed for me in, in Congress and then through the Senate. Usually you call that bribery, but we call it lobbying. And that was from the beginning. I mean, if ever there was a system that made it for the rich to be richer, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love the United States of America. There's no other country. I've been to a, first, a couple other first world countries, and there's no opportunity like there is here. But that's not from blind patriotism. It's just from observation. So I love the U.S. But let's be honest. Money has always been a corruption factor in our government. Always. And so we have to understand that, that money can be so detrimental if it's something to be held onto and grasped and sought after. Or it can actually be used in a way that brings God glory and praise. It's incredible. But how is, is it based on because you have to? No. Is it based on because you should be compelled? No. It's based on if you decide that you want to do this, then you could be part of bringing glory to God through that. And, and, I, and I, I say that fully understanding all the weirdness that has happened with money in the church throughout all generations. Because anytime you have human beings in stuff, they mess it up, right? It's just, it's just my favorite proverb, my favorite proverb in the Proverbs is, I think it's uh, chapter 15, where it says, where there's no oxen, the stable is clean. But with many oxen, much work is done. There's literally a Bible proverb that says you have to put up with BS to get stuff done. That's awesome. Like, God is very wise, right? So anytime you have people, you're going to have a messy, a messy stall, right? Because we're all broken. But anytime you trust God and move forward, much work is done. We'll move on. Flip, if you will, back to 1 Corinthians 16. The second thing he's going to address is visiting them. He says there in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 5, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Now, that might seem a little redundant in English, and depending on how your English translates it, but he's literally just saying, hey, after I go to Macedonia, uh, I'll visit you, and I actually am going to Macedonia. Like, he's trying to reassure them that, that he is going to show up. Verse 6, perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. So he's just, this is just a personal note to the Corinthians. He's saying, I want to go there. I want to visit, but I don't want to just pass through. I want to actually have a visit that I can stay there. And he says, I'd like to spend the winter there. So the winter traditionally in that area is like ours. It's January and February. So he's saying, this is, I'd like to spend a couple of months there. Because travel in general, especially sea travel, uh, was not a thing during the winter. You might remember that multiple times Paul says, oh, we weathered, we wintered in this little, this little area. Which is kind of interesting, right? Because we always think of fast pace and doing this and the ministry. And Paul's like, yeah, you know what, I'll spend three months there and just kind of hang out when the, as the weather goes over. And then after that, I'll jump on a boat and keep going on my missionary journey. But anyway, so he says, I want to come visit you, but I want it to be uh, a solid thing. Uh, or a solid amount of time. Verse 8, check this out. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. And this is the second part we want to kind of camp on. 
He says here, <laughs> he says, a great door has opened to me for ministry, but there's many adversaries. So he's talking about Ephesus. So if we were to go back to Acts chapter 19, what's going on in Ephesus when he's there? Well, he's there for about three months. If you remember, in those three months, you have uh, a riot, right? And remember when we were going through Acts, and if you're here, we had some pictures, and we looked at the, uh, the amphitheater of this Ephesus. It holds something crazy like 25 or 35,000 people. And it says that they were in that, in the, the, once he's uh, uh, kind of stirred this riot up, that the, the, the amphitheater is packed and they're smashed together. So you have like 25, 35,000 people are all in this one place, and they have one goal in mind, and it's to kill Paul, right? And then and instead they drag up these two other brothers in the Lord, and they threaten to kill him, they beat him, they do all these different things. That was at Ephesus. Ephesus, and not to get grotesque, remember Ephesus is the place where you walk down the street and there's just phallic symbols everywhere. And there's, there's uh, nude women everywhere. There's uh, uh, the Temple of Diana where they estimate had about 10,000 temple prostitutes that worked out of that particular temple. So it's, it's a place that's inundated with sex and sexual symbolism. It's a place that makes the United States of America look like play school, you know, or, uh, uh, preschool compared to their culture, right? So it's one of those things. And why bring all that up? That's his version of a wide open door. See, for many of us, and I'm not making any judgment calls on you as individuals, but for many of us, when we say, I'm waiting for an open door, what we're saying is, I'm waiting for something easy to happen that I can just walk right through, and that would be the open door to me. But that's not really always real in ministry. Sometimes it is. Sometimes God kicks down a door, and you get to walk through it, and it's just, it just works out, and that's glorious. But it's important, I think, that we take a biblical perspective or at least a, a Pauline perspective on what an open door was. Here's this place that's rancid, it's disgusting, it's inundated with just radical sin that's, that's, that's uh, displeasurable to my own eyes, that's difficult for me to deal with, that I have to walk in and be part of. You know, he's, and all of that, that, you have thousands of people that hate you. Do you remember why the riot was? The riot is because all these people start getting saved in Ephesus. They get saved. They don't pass laws to stop the stuff from happening, although that could be good. They don't get politically motivated. No, they just start preaching the gospel. And what happens is thousands get saved. And a lot of them are, are obviously, the majority of them are, are, uh, would be uh, Roman pagans or Greek pagans, depending on which set of gods. Because I don't know, essentially you have Greek mythology or paganism, right? And then the Romans kind of took over. and They're like, hey, we like that, but we're going to rename all your gods. And then through about 350 A.D., Constantine fights a battle, calls upon the name of the Lord. In his mind, he wins the battle, and he says, hey, all right, we're going to take Christianity and merge it with Roman polytheism. Voila, Venus is actually Mary, la, 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 la. So you get that, right? So, <laughs> little, there you go, world history of religion. But so what happens is, Paul just starts preaching the gospel. A lot of these people are practicing witchcraft. And so they decide, after they get saved, they're going to have a giant book-burning ceremony. And so they take all these witchcraft books and all these pagan root books and they begin to burn them. And somebody evidently is there tallying it because they're like, wow, that was 25,000 silver worth of books, which is a lot of money, right? That's millions and millions of dollars. And so what's happening is all these people are getting saved. The silversmiths are starting to lose money. And so they have kind of a guild meeting where they come together and like, yeah, this guy's costing us a lot of jack. And Diana's kind of getting a bad name. So... That might be secondary because the big issue is we're losing out on our, our business here. So they start a riot. So all that to say is an open door for ministry doesn't mean that it's easy. It means that it's effectual. Does that make sense? So as an example, I was talking to a buddy of mine. This is it's kind of embarrassing. I was, not that I was talking to him, but that I was, we are having this conversation because at our old church, when I lived in California, we did... I don't know how many hours of witnessing, thousands of hours of two-by-two two witnessing, going door-to-door, door, all of that. Like, no, 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 we're not J-dubs. We actually have the real gospel that you still don't care about. But the, we, we, all of these doors, right? And it, I wasn't super effective at it. Uh, I didn't see a whole bunch of people come to Christ. And so it kind of soured me on two-by-two two witnessing. Didn't, I've never said it's ineffective or we shouldn't do it. It's just not something we've ever, I've ever super promoted at the church, for good, bad, or the ugly. And, but he told me, he's like, yeah, I actually started setting up a book table and, and just witnessing to people at the farmer's market again. So in San Luis Obispo, where I'm from, there's a farmer's market, and you can actually do it all year's round because there's this thing called the sun there. And 
you know, you can do it pretty much every week. And sometimes there's about 10,000 people at this farmer's market. And we used to hand out tracts and talk to people about Jesus, all those types of things. And he says, yeah, I've started doing that again. And I was kind of like, what? <laughs> Seriously? It got to the point where, like, people would just walk by us. Like, they got to know us. I mean, you spend 11 years out handing out tracts and preaching on a street corner, and guess what? People know who you are. And eventually they're like, oh, yeah, no. And they move on. But he goes, no, I've just started doing this. And I go, I go, why? Even though I shouldn't ask that, like, why are you doing that? Like, how is that working out? What do you do with all the arguments about uh, sexuality or politics? Or, you know? And he goes, he goes, oh, no, no, no. This is the embarrassing part. I, I don't know why I didn't thought about this. He just goes, no, no. I just tell him, hey, oh, uh, yeah, have a, have a nice night. And I stopped talking to them. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. And this is the profound part that I'm really embarrassed I never thought of. He goes, I'm not, I'm not here to convince anybody to follow Jesus. He goes, I'm just out there looking for the people that are already ready. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I spent so much time in my life, in my witnessing life, trying to convince people. No, no, you don't understand. Oh, the earth is this old. No, you don't understand. There was a flood. No, you don't understand. The barrier reef is only, it's, it grows an inch a year, and it's like 4,200 inches long, and there's a flood. <laughs> Let me hand you Ken Ham's video. And instead, just being like, oh, you're not interested in Jesus? Oh, you, you think I'm a bigot? Oh, that's cool. Hey, God bless you. Have a nice night. And go to the next person. See, it's a wide and open door. It's a great door. But there's many adversaries. Jesus put it this way. He says, you're blessed when people smack talk you. That's not King James Version. When people <laughs> smack talk you, right? When they mock you and make fun of you and they trash you. He says, you're blessed when you do it in my name, not for being a jerk. If you're a jerk and people do that, then you're just reaping what you sowed. But if you're being kind and people will hate you for, for Jesus' sake, he says, that's a blessed life. He says, because they did it to me and they've done it to every legitimate prophet that's ever existed. So it's this whole new way of looking at God's work and how we can be involved in it. That it's not about just always having the easiest thing or something like that. It's about moving forward where there's fruit. Last verse we'll look at, if you don't mind, at, at the idea of open doors. He says there in Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, it's page 1429. In, in Philippians chapter 1, he says there in verse 27, he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he's challenging them. And he's saying, walk in a worthy manner. That doesn't mean walk in a way where God says you're worthy of the gospel, right? Because we know that we weren't worthy of what Christ did for us. But what he's saying is, walk in a way that you show worth to the gospel. That if someone were to look at your life, they would say, well, the gospel is worth something. Because this person's life is different, right? So he says, walk in that way. And then he says, he talks about, the, he goes, when he's away, he says, that way I'll know, I'll hear. If you're doing that, I'll hear and I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together. Right? So if we're walking in a way that's, worth, that's showing the gospel is worth something, it means that we're playing nice with others, first and foremost. And that we're united together in others for, for a purpose. And that is to generate faith in one another, but in, in this world for the gospel, among others. Right? That's our goal as Christians. Then he goes, among others, it's a goal of Christians. But then he goes on to say... Um, Striving every one faith for the gospel, verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. So he makes a point. He says, look, he goes, we don't have to be afraid of people that oppose us. People that want to say that we think a certain way or a certain way or that we, we, we hate or we're bigots or we're this or that other thing. And we say, no, 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 it's, I'm about the love of Christ. He says, he goes, you don't have to worry about that. It's tough to not worry about that, right? We want to be liked. We don't want to be thought of as, as jerks. They hated Jesus. They hated him. Think about that. This guy literally walked around saying, I love you guys, healed everybody who came to him, healed people who didn't come to him, 
and, and went to the cross, said, Father, forgive them, and they hated him. They absolutely hated him, and he never did anything except for good. So us, who can't make that same claim, that we've only done good in our lives, but now are hopefully making an effort to uh, allow the Spirit to enter our lives and lead us in what we can do, we will also be hated. And to, and to, but we want to be hated because we love people. We want to be hated because we're helping people. We want to be hated because of some other reason that we're just trying to get people to stop doing something or something like that. We want to be hated for the, for the gospel's sake. And he says, when that happens, he, it'll be evidence to them. We don't really think about that. He's, it's evidence that they'll understand whether we think so or not, the Bible's testimony is that some of that anger or response is coming from a place that they understand by your kindness and by your love that they are heading for destruction. It is a, in Corinthians, to the Corinthians, he says, he says it this way, we're an aroma of death to some and we're an aroma of life to others. So to some people, the love of Christ and the tenderness of Christ exuded through a human, it smells like death to them because they only equate Christ with the idea that, well, they refuse to repent from their sins. They refuse to turn from it. So it means destruction to them. But he goes on and he says in verse 29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So he makes it, I said one time in a sermon, I said, no one ever puts that in a frame. And then someone framed it and gave it to me. It's on my desk. This is, you know, I don't know, some people have like life verses and stuff like that. And what we mean is like things that always minister to me. I love this verse. Because the word granted, it literally is gifted like a present. You know, you don't hand somebody that for the birthday. When they open it up, you're like, suffering. That's oh, what I asked for. Thanks. But he's literally saying, like, you, you have a gift. God gave you a gift. And it's the opportunity to trust him and receive the gospel. But there's, there's a second part of that gift. It's, it's, like the, it's like the fine print that they don't put on gospel tracks. You get to suffer for him. He's given it to you as a gift to suffer for him. Now we know that suffering can reap something great in our lives. When we bring it back to God and we say, here it is, I don't understand this or I don't like this or whatever it might be. Have mercy on me, help me, be with me, show me, whatever it might be. But suffering has a purpose in our life. It creates good things in us when we filter it and allow Christ to move and work in us as it's happening, right? It's not going to reap anything good in us if we're just angry and, and telling everybody how mad we are and how miserable we are. But when we come to points and we're, we're honest about who God is and with ourselves and that we don't like this that's happening in our lives, but you know what? This is temporal. It reminds us of the temporality of this life. Because in heaven, there's no more suffering, no more death, no more frowns, none of that, right? There's only life. And so Paul says in our endeavor for the gospel, you've been gifted suffering. The thing is, you don't ever have to accept that part of the gift. Jesus put it this way. He said, you cannot be my disciple. He didn't say you cannot be saved. He said, you cannot be my disciple if you don't take up your cross and follow me. If I don't say no to myself and yes to God and what he has for me, I can't become like Jesus until I stand before him and it's forcibly, the stuff in my life I've insisted on is forcibly removed, as we read about there in 1 Corinthians 3. So you and I have an opportunity, and it is genuinely an opportunity, to be available for God's kingdom. Whatever that means, and I'm not even telling you what that means. You know, it's awesome, because in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, uh, after the, uh, uh, a great treatise about being saved by grace through faith, Paul says this, he says, For we were saved... For, uh, unto or for good works. We didn't get saved by good works. We don't keep being saved by good works, but we were saved for good works, right? And, he, and then we, and, and the, but you can get a little anxious about that and go, well, what good works? What good works? Because he says that we are his workmanship in Christ. And the word workmanship, uh, if you're not familiar with that, it's, it's the word poema, the Greek word poema. So it's like artistry or craftsmanship. It's not just like we're thrown together, like, he knocked a, you know, a chip off the old block, and there you go. It's that he crafted you. You're his, you're his artistry. And so he says, we, we're crafted, or we're his artistry in Christ for good works, which he ordained beforehand that we should walk in. 
So when we get up in the morning, we don't have to look at all. I mean, there's no end to ministry, is there? I mean, is there, will there ever be a time in anybody's life where you could say, like, hey, ministry's done. Nobody needs anything. Nobody's bummed out. Everybody's provided for. That day doesn't even happen in our lives, much less all of us as a collective. And so he says, we don't have to worry about all the needs in the world. The, the, the people in Africa, the, the aborigines in Australia, or these people or those people, we don't have to do any of that. We, don't have, we can pray for them as the Lord puts it on our heart, but they're not our responsibility. You know what our responsibility is? What did God call you to do today? And you know what the cool thing is? You can get up in the morning and go, I don't know. I have no idea what God has called me to do today. But what I do know, I'm supposed to love him and I'm supposed to love his people. So I'm going to be on the lookout. Where are opportunities that I could love him and love his people? I know, maybe while I'm brewing my coffee, I could think about it. Oh, thank you, Lord, that I have coffee to brew. I could actually become intentional about worship in my life. Thank you, Lord, that I get to be under a roof. Or if I don't have a roof, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to suffer, to understand what you went through. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Right? He says, foxes have holes and the birds have nests. He goes, I don't have anywhere to call home, is what Jesus said. There's always an opportunity to learn. We can get up and say, Lord, is there someone that you want me to minister to today? I don't have to have all the ins and outs of apologetics. I don't have to know the age of the earth or even have a pamphlet that tells me what it is. I don't have to know about the stars. I don't have to know about any of that stuff or molecules or cells that look like a wavy cross. I don't have to know any of that. I just have to know that Jesus loves me. And I could tell someone else, this is how I know it. I was trashed and God had mercy on me. And he wants to have mercy on you too. What does that mean? I don't know all it means. What I know is that Christ came as a man, as a person, that God came as a person and that God judged him on a cross instead of me and you. And that you, all that guilt and shame that you feel, you can get rid of that permanently by just accepting the fact that Christ died and paid for your sin. He rose and rose from the dead, and now it says that he ever lives to make intercession for you. Jesus' ministry, this very moment, is to be in heaven and to minister and to pray for you. He's an intercessor. He cares about you. It's a wild idea because nobody on the planet cares about us like that. They get frustrated with us, and rightly so. Right? They, they, we wear thin, all these things. Jesus doesn't. So in all the stuff that's out there, you don't have to worry about any of it except what God puts on your heart. You know, it's funny. Uh, I was at this conference, last idea here, and we'll close. I was at a conference years ago, and I was listening to this teacher, and uh, pastors are wussies. They really are, you know, because sometimes I, like, go to these conferences and, like, wah, wah, this, and wah, wah, that, and you're just like, eh, okay, I guess, but come on, man. It's, it's, like, it's like becoming a, 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 you know, running for sheriff and expecting everybody to like you. You know what I mean? It's just not real. So we're at, the, we're at this thing, and I remember one of the speakers said, it was so good, he goes, you know what? you're probably not the first person that God asked to do the ministry that you're doing. You're probably just the first one that said yes. And I was like, that's legit. <laughs> you know, all we have to do is say yes to what God has called us to do. And if it's hard, we can say yes, but that's really hard. Can you show me how to do it? If it's, if it's difficult, yes, but can you fill me with your spirit so I have strength for that? That's what we're called to do. So the Lord has great things for you today. If you don't know him, he's calling you to be saved. He's calling you literally, the word saved is sozo in the Greek, to be rescued. Rescued from yourself, rescued from your sin, rescued from people around you that are destroying you. He wants to save you. And if you know Christ, he's got great things for you. The more we try to gather in our life and protect ours, the more empty we'll get. Because we were designed to pour out. We were designed to give in, in whatever capacity that means in our life. So if God's calling you to, to, to be involved in something or whatever it might be, saying no will only lead to emptiness. It'll lead to emptiness, a wandering, uh, just like a desert land. But saying yes will lead to suffering and glory and peace and a wonderment, a worship of, of how God's brought you through it because he's faithful. So let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word and for your kindness. Lord, thank you for lunch afterwards and food. Thanks for providing for us. We pray, Lord, we have a sweet time of fellowship. And as we go forward, your spirit would abide with, abide with us and that we would listen to him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys.